with the angels of heaven and praising you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are the beginning, you are the end, and you're everything in between. You're the God of our hearts and you're the God of the universe. You hung the heavens in where they are. You established the foundation of the earth. And even though our lives are like grass, it's here today, gone tomorrow, God, you reach down to rescue us and save us and bring us into a relationship with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Thank you. Though you set the physics of our universe in motion, you also reach down and call our names. And you know the intricacies of our lives. God, sometimes it almost seems too good to be true. And then we remember your faithfulness again. Your goodness again. The ways that you have worked in our lives that we cannot even deny, nor we could have imagined beforehand. So God, be glorified in our lives. You are our King. You are the one that we live for above all others. And so God, we confess our pride to you this morning of exalting ourselves to a place higher than you. We confess that. We get off our thrones. You get in that throne, God. You, <laughs> may you be in charge of our lives. And we thank you and we praise you and I'll open up our hearts to hear your word this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. You may have a seat. And it is so good to see you guys again today. Though I have to admit, um, after, like we ordered uh, some new stage lights back in August or I don't know, a long time ago. They finally came in this week, so I can't see you as well as I normally do today. Because um, they're quite bright, which I'm thankful for. Um, but uh, thank you to Jim Roskowski and his whole team for putting those in uh, this week. For real, those guys, big help. All right, we're diving in. Week five uh, of this series we've been called, leading up to Easter called Kingdom Come. And before, before we dive in, um, I can distinctly remember uh, the first time I saw the movie Braveheart. We got any Braveheart fans in here? Oh, yeah, look at that guy. Look at him. You know, th that movie came out in 1995, but I didn't watch it till it was like a decade old. So I, I remember being familiar with this blue face, um, but not actually watching it until college. And now, if you haven't seen it, warning, I'm about to spoil the ending for you, okay? But it's been out for 27 years. And so if you try to tell me after the service, I was going to watch it tonight. Like, no, you weren't. No, you weren't. No, you weren't. Plus, like once a movie's been out at least 20 years, you're allowed to spoil the ending, right? Like, that's a rule. And if it's not a rule, it should be a rule, okay? It should be. But so the first time I, was, I, I turned it on, I was immediately hooked into the story. And if you haven't seen it, it's based on a true story of this small but mighty group of Scots under the direction of William Wallace in like the 1300s. And they're up against the big, bad English who are wanting to rule their land, and they fight valiantly, and sometimes violently, against those English. And the whole time, 
You know, the, it's about two and a half hours long. It's full of ups and downs, victories and triumphs, but every, uh, every, there's also tragedy in the midst of it. And every tragedy, you're thinking, you know what? William Wallace is going to come through in the end, right? Like, like justice will be served. The, the, the good will triumph over evil because that's how it's supposed to be. And two and a half hours into the movie, I get to the place where William Wallace is captured. I'm thinking, it's Wallace. He's going to get out of this. Freedom, right? Like, like that's, that's the way it goes. But then he's taken to the executioner. You're like, Okay, his friends are about to do something, right? Because they're there and, wait, why aren't they doing anything, right? And all of a sudden the axe comes down. I remember watching it and just going, what? I sat two and a half hours for that? To see that ending to this whole movie? Like, you got to be kidding me. Like, where is justice in any of that? And some of you who may know the movie be like, but Kirk, like, you got to know, like, Wallace's death inspired the Scots to win and beat the English. Okay, that's fine, right? But still, like, where's Wallace's justice in all of this? It's not the way it's supposed to be. And see, that thing that was coming out of me toward the end of that movie was a sense of justice, right? And we all get that feeling, don't we? Right? Like, we, we have this, this innate sense that a story is supposed to end with good triumphing over evil. And my reaction to Braveheart might have been a little ridiculous, right? It's just a movie, Kirk. Part of it's real life, okay? Part of it's real life. But like, how can we not get angry when, when, a, when a stronger nation tries to conquer a weaker one or a smaller one? When a bully takes advantage of the weak. How do we not get angry when a majority group oppresses a minority group or when a, a murderer, molester, abuser seems to, to get away with their crime without paying much for it? Like, how is that okay? It's not. I mean, even as kids, we got this, right? Like, when we're watching a movie, like, we know good's supposed to beat evil, and when it doesn't, not fair. That's one of my, my, my kids' favorite phrases. It's not fair. Nothing's fair, kid. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> but like we get it from an early age, right? Like there's, and I think it's because God made us that way. He made us with this sense of justice that in the end, evil is supposed to give an account and good is supposed to triumph ultimately. And I believe that that thing that's within us, that all of us seem to be born with, is meant to point us, to lead us, to see how Jesus and his promised kingdom is the fulfillment of that ache. Because he said that my kingdom will come. And when my kingdom comes, I will one day establish justice on the earth as it is in heaven. So today, week five of the series, Kingdom Come, we're going to dig into what does that look like when his justice is finally established on the earth. Last week, we saw how Jesus said his kingdom had come and how, but it had come, but, but not fully. That Jesus came and when he came with his death and resurrection, he broke the back of sin, death, and evil. Yet, we still live in a world where we feel the effects of sin, death, and evil. That though his kingdom has come, and that's the one we belong to if we belong to Christ, we still are contending with the tension of living in this old age. But he promises 
that a day is still yet to come in, the, in our future when Jesus will return and he will establish justice once and for all and the old age will be gone. So what does that look like? That's our question for today. How will Christ establish justice upon the earth? And what about us? What happens to us on that day when he establishes justice? Now let's look together in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. If you want to turn there in the Blue Bibles, we're on page 788. And again, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one of these home with you as our gift to you. Um, we want to make sure that everyone has a Bible, access to God's Word at home. Matthew 7. So this is the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he's been talking the whole time about what is his kingdom like and who are his kingdom people. And then once he gets to the end, though, he's talking about that day, meaning a day to come when a justice will be established on the earth. It's just three verses, but pay close attention here. Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. Everybody ready? All right. Verse 21. Not everyone, this is Jesus talking, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, say that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Jesus, this is a, a weighty few verses. But I pray that in the midst of if, if its weightiness that we won't turn away from it, but that we'll look intently at it that we will open our hearts and trust you, that even if it is weighty, God, that we know that there's something that you want to, to speak that will edify, liberate, build up, not tear down. So we welcome you, Holy Spirit, to come say whatever it is you want to say. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer in whom we trust. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So if you came this morning expecting some cozy words from Jesus... He disappoints. <laughs> he disappoints here. Uh, this is only three verses. But wow, they're important. They're the kind of verses that make you want to sit up and say, oh, what is he really saying here? What does he mean? And before I get to the part that's probably on a lot of our minds, which is who is in and who seems to be out of the kingdom of heaven, I want to first talk about what Jesus means by that day. All right, I'll get to that part. But first, what does he mean by that day? What is that day referring to? You see it right there at the beginning of verse 22. Many will say to me, on that day. What is that day? You see, the day is coming soon after Jesus returns when he will establish justice upon the earth. First notice, when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking originally to a, a, group, a Jewish audience. And when he refers to that day, he doesn't take the time to explain to them what he means because they already have this Old Testament framework in their minds of what he means. And to try to get at least a sense of what was in their minds. I think it was passages like Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 to 14 where the prophet Daniel received a vision from God of one 
See a third line there. Like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Next verse. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so based just on what Daniel said here, what did Jesus' Jewish audience understand about that day? There are really three things that they understood that we're to get to. First, God will send his king with divine authority to judge. And in Matthew 7, Jesus is saying, I'm that king. He's speaking in the first person, not about somebody else. He is that king. But second, all people on that day will stand before him and recognize him as Lord. That is, all people since creation will stand before their creator. Even those who rejected Christ in this life will bow before him, recognize him as Lord. And for that reason, we know he's talking about not a day that's already happened, but it's got to be a day to come because we would know about it if that had already happened. But how is it that all people since creation will stand before Christ? Well, Jesus fills that out for us a bit more in John chapter 5. There's several places that I could point to, but John chapter 5, Jesus is talking about not still himself, but in the third person, referring to himself as the Son of Man, which is a reference to Daniel. He said, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. That those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. If I had more time, we'd unpack Revelation 20. That talks about the same thing, that Jesus, a.k.a. the Son of Man, when he returns, even the dead will be raised to life so that both the living and the dead will stand before him and give an account. And so on that day, all people will stand before the divine king and judge. And last, that day will usher in the just everlasting kingdom of God. That the other side of that day is eternity. And in eternity, that is when God's kingdom will be fully established upon this earth. And Jesus says on that day, many will try to give reasons for why they should be allowed within God's kingdom, but only those who truly belong to Christ will live with him. Now, Jesus' Jewish listeners certainly had their own framework when they heard these words from him. And as 21st century postmodern Americans, you better believe we have our own framework. It's quite different from the Jewish one. For a lot of the Jews in that day, they were thinking, ah, Jesus is talking about the pagan nations, but not us. And so Jesus had to help them realize, actually, I need you to check your own hearts too. For us today, though, at least a lot of postmodern culture, like we hear, we can easily receive Jesus as a God of love, but God's judgment seems unloving. I mean, 
if you have a certain framework of Jesus as just a meek and mild person, and then you hear him say, I never knew you away from me, it's kind of shocking, is it not? If Jesus loves all people, how could he exclude some? The question goes. But what I want us to be cautious about is that when we encounter passages like this that help us to see the justice of God, and we don't know how to reconcile that with the love of God, I want to caution us against trying to go off path and trying to customize God. Because we love to customize things in this culture, don't we? Oh man, I go to Subway or Chipotle because I want it my way. Right? I go to Starbucks. I want that grande, no whip, peppermint mocha latte, extra hot with just a jiggle of cinnamon on top. You know, put that almond milk in there. I want it exactly the way I want it or I'm not paying. And we try to pull that same customizing stunt on Jesus. Then we open the Bible and we're like, I'm going to read the passages that talk about his compassion, his love, his forgiveness. But the judgment passages, they're just a little too spicy, right? Like, they upset me a little bit. Or for other people, it's maybe they go the opposite. They're like, this world's messed up. All those, all those love passages are too soft. Like, I want meaty judgment. I want meaty judgment. And that's where they hang out. But what we end up trying to do is separate God's love from his justice, when we don't know how to reconcile them, we try to separate them. But God's love cannot be excluded from his justice, nor his justice from his love. He is both. That God's judgment is the righteous fulfillment of his justice because he loves. You guys tracking with me? And if we try to define his love without his justice, we lose his love because it's just tolerance. Just tolerance. You know, like if you saw a dad that never disciplined his son. There was no standard of right or wrong for their child and never disciplined their kid. W would you assume that dad even cares about his kid? We have some questions, right? Because it sounds like they just want to be their friend, not actually raise them. And if we realize that in the end that the wicked do not have to answer to God, when we look at the atrocities of this world, does God even care? You see, if we try to throw away justice and just keep love, like, that's a pretty weak, unloving God. But at the same time, if we try to seek justice without love, then it's not justice anymore, it's just angry revenge. Because if we're honest with ourselves, man, we've all fallen short of God's holy standard and if we've all fallen short, then we all really deserve have to be condemned. And if without God's love, we wouldn't even be talking about this right now. But you see, God's justice, his final judgment, is the complete outworking of his glorious love. And Matthew 7 is Jesus' promise that his justice and love will prevail over evil no matter how dark or hopeless it may seem. And if we read Matthew 7 and Jesus' words here in light of his justice and love, you know what I think I imagine him saying? I think I imagine him saying those words with tears coming down his eyes. I never knew you. Away from me. 
not with that righteous, angry fist. Because yes, he's a God of justice, but he's also a God of love. But on that day, what will happen to us? What about us? I mean, now we're getting at the main question Jesus is answering here. And because, again, he loves us, that's why he tells us, so that we may know. So who will enter God's kingdom? Who will not? Well, first, if we expect to sweet talk or earn our way into the kingdom of heaven, we will be soberly surprised. Listen closely to Jesus here, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Now what's confusing here is, is the title, Lord, Lord, for Jesus, like, isn't that the right answer? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, Romans 10, 9 says that if we are going to be saved, we must confess him to be Lord over our lives. This is the correct answer. Right? But not only that, but he's saying, Lord, Lord. He's saying it twice. Whoever's saying this is, is enthusiastic. They're public about it. So, so what's wrong with this, Jesus? As he said, when the words of Lord are devoid of real life obedience, it proves only a show. Jesus is not faulting them for calling him Lord. He's faulting them for calling them Lord with their mouths, but their lives say something completely different. Luke 6, 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why is it that sometimes we see that we can be tempted to say one thing and live another? Well, for, for one, like, sometimes we call him Lord because we want something from him, not because we actually want to serve him. There's a lot of examples in the Gospels of people calling out, Lord, because they want a miracle from him, but they have no interest in following him. But sometimes calling him Lord publicly, enthusiastically, is more about serving us than it is about serving him. And as a pastor, man, I feel this. Because it's certainly a temptation for pastors, Bible teachers, anybody who has any sense of authority in a church or ministry context to enthusiastically proclaim Jesus only to impress church people or to build our career instead of actually trying to love Jesus. We're getting real. And 1 John 1, 6 says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk, walk means habitually live in the darkness, then we lie and do not live out the truth. That on that day, right answers will not save us. At least not alone, but only sincere faith. And so sincere faith is evidenced by living out the will of the Father. And if we do not desire to, to live and love like Jesus in this life, don't think that we can sweet talk our way into the kingdom on that day because he knows our hearts. But also, we cannot impress Jesus enough to get into his kingdom. People were trying to convince Jesus that they're worthy. And they said, Lord, Lord, I, I prophesied. I even exercised demons. I did all kind of like ministry stuff. I performed miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. 
depart from me, evildoers. I mean, those are chilling words. I never knew you. Just as it's possible to give all the right answers without loving Jesus, people can do a lot of ministry stuff, even supernatural works, without knowing Jesus. And you're wondering, like, how is it possible that somebody can even do miracles or, or prophesy or exercise demons without Jesus? Man, there's, there's actually several examples in the New Testament of people doing these types of things, but instead of being the real thing, they're counterfeits. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 speaks of a man of lawlessness, a lawless one uh, who, will, in accordance with how Satan works, he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the what? The lie, not the truth. That Satan can counterfeit a lot of things. A lot, not everything, as I'll get to in a little bit. But he can counterfeit a lot of things. And we can do a lot of things without the Holy Spirit within us. Listen, just because I can go out and drive a car doesn't necessarily mean I have my license. And just because I can, I can be a leader at church, I can sing on Sundays, I can raise a million dollars for charity, or I can start a big ministry, doesn't necessarily mean that the Spirit of God dwells inside of me. And if you get to that day and you're like, look at my, my rap sheet, Jesus, and all the stuff I've done, you may be sorely disappointed. Because if talented enough, I can do a lot of things. But all the while, my motives for doing those things is something other than a genuine love for Jesus. But knowing Jesus is not just knowing the right answers about him or doing ministry for him, but it's a genuine relationship of love with him. And that relationship begins the day that we realize that we have sinned against God, but that our sin is being met, was met with his grace. And that prompts us to give him our lives. That we've all failed, all of us, to live up to the standard of our creator. But our hope is in his grace. Because when we stood before God and we stand before God, you know, falling so far short of his holy standard and, and justly condemned for it. Instead, the spotless one, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Son of Man, stood before the lowercase j, Judge Pontius Pilate. He was condemned as a criminal. And he walked the way of a cross bearing the wrath of God for our sin. And he rose again on the third day that we might be united with him now and forever as his spirit lives within us. Guys, that's the good news. And see, and we can know that what's in us is real. Because if we have heard this message of grace, if we have experienced this kind of love, the only response we can give is, God, I'm yours. And I want to follow you above all. Come live in me. And the day we recognize that sin, his overwhelming grace and surrender our lives, guess what? You've begun a relationship with Jesus. Not because you had all the right answers and not because you did a bunch of good ministry stuff to impress him, but because of what he's done for you and me. We receive that. And man, if you've done that, you belong to Christ. You are his. And if that's what you've done, what does that mean for you, for us? 
both today and on that day to come. That if Christ is in you and you desire to live for him above all others, man, you can rest in his grace. If I had to guess, you know, even hearing and studying this passage for myself this week, I started thinking, oh man, like, am I even saved? <laughs> like, it, it really causes us to start to ask those internal questions. Like, like ha, 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 how can I know that when I get on that day that I will actually belong? What, what if my faith isn't real? What if I'm putting on a front for Jesus? How can we know? How can we know? If you really, if that is a question that's, that's, that's strong within you, I, I would encourage you, take some time and read the book of 1 John. 1 John answers that question in a bunch of different ways over and over again. Study that book. But for the sake of time, my question is, what are those things within us that Satan cannot counterfeit? What are those things that only the Spirit of God can produce in us? Where can we look to assure ourselves that we belong to Christ? Two questions. Is there a desire within you to be like and serve Jesus? Satan, our flesh, and they can't produce a genuine love for Jesus. It's just not possible. And while we all wrestle with you know, unholy motives in our lives, right? Like, like that's, that's a part of life on earth is that we are battling with, with different motives other than a love for Jesus. But if there is just the presence of a love for Jesus within your life and you see that it, it's growing over time and that's the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. Because only the Holy Spirit can produce that in you. But second question, do you love those Jesus loves? Matthew 25, Jesus gives a much more expanded, detailed picture of what that day will be like. And on that, he says, the Son of Man will separate those who belong to him from those who don't. And he says, based on those who cared for the least of these, like he does. He's not saying that you can earn your way into the kingdom of heaven by caring for the least of these. He's saying the evidence of genuine faith within you is do you care for those Jesus cares about? Is his love present within you and working itself through you increasingly over time as you get to know him? You guys okay? Tracking with me? And if Christ is in us, man, that means we can look forward to that day. But not with dread, but with hope. Hope. And even though we live in a broken world, where real life William Wallace's sometimes die in the end. And we see times when justice seems to be lost. Or we don't know why evil seems to be triumphing over evil. Man, we know we know without a shadow of a doubt that, that, that our God is going to come one day and establish justice. And that changes how we live today. And first, if, if history answers to him, then I don't have to control all aspects of my life today. Right? If he is sovereign, if he is sovereign God over time, if he is in control and I am his, if he established the earth and he promises to redeem it and restore it, that means that I can find, as the psalmist says, my refuge in him. 
I can be confident that he has my family, he has my future, he has my job, he has my provision, that he's already determined the end of the story, so I know he's got the middle too. Man, one of my favorite, like, you guys know, no secret, I love University of Tennessee sports. <sighs> Rest in peace, basketball team. Um, but when I'm watching a game live, football or basketball, man, I'm a nervous wreck. But there's some days that I can't watch it live, but I'll find out who wins, and if Tennessee wins, I'll go back and watch it. Man, that's the most calm sports-watching experience ever. Because even when they're losing, I'm like, I know what happens in the end. Right? And that's, what we're, that's where we are. That we can rest knowing that he's in control because we know what happens in the end. But second, because Christ paid our debt, we don't have to punish ourselves. If Christ paid our debt of sin, it's finished. We're free. And the thoughts of guilt or shame, I know, still try to come in and muddy the waters of our mind. But when they do, we confess them to Christ in prayer. We, we, we rest in his grace and we receive his love again. You know, sometimes like the, the moments when God's love has been most real to me have been the very moments when I'm finally just willing to confess where I've fallen short. Because I'm so afraid of admitting where I've sinned. But oftentimes when I do, there's just this wash of love and grace on the other side. Third, because Christ is the judge, we don't need to condemn others. Jesus knows what's truly in people's hearts, not us. And it's not our role to determine who's in and who's out. <laughs> and it's not our role to separate ourselves from those we think are out. It's our role to be ambassadors of Christ in this world. It's not our role to punish somebody. It's not our role to withhold forgiveness from somebody. That's, that's Christ's job. Amen. He's the God of justice, not us. Now, even though he will, when we know that he will establish justice in this world, we do still work for justice in this world, but with the hope of restoration. Right, like the reason why, if you're in charge of kids at all, the reason why we seek to discipline kids is not to crush them, though. It's to train them, right, so that they might learn to love Jesus. And if you're, if you're a police officer or attorney in here, yes, it's your job to arrest or to prosecute, right, to protect. But if we're Christians, we don't do that so that somebody will get and rot in a jail cell. But we do that with the hope that they could be restored one day. That as Christians, we should speak up for justice in this world. But, but we know our Savior is working and he will establish justice. That means we can speak up for the voiceless. We can care for the least of these, knowing that our labor is not in vain. And some of you guys, man, if you're a social worker, this is an exhausting job. And many days it can feel like your labor is in vain. But God says, no. He is the one ultimately working over human history. And if it ultimately belongs to him, that means we can work boldly to see his kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And if you've surrendered your life to Jesus in this life, the greatest surprise on the day of judgment will be his open arms of grace. And the reason why I say his grace will be a surprise <laughs> 
is because on that day, we will all stand before a God of matchless glory. The angels of heaven will be circling his throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. There will be no shadow upon him for from his very being emanates only love, wisdom, and beauty. And like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, if, when we stand before God like that, we can't help but be overwhelmed by just how far short we fall of his holiness. I know I will be. And on that day, what will be our confidence? Knowing the right answers? That I did some ministry stuff in my life? Some other self-justification pointing back at me? Or instead of looking to myself, will my whole confidence be in Christ and what he's done for us? That on that day, instead of pointing to me, he says, man, What account do you give? We point to the one who has nail holes in his hands and in his feet. You say, he has covered my sin. He has washed me clean. I am his. And on that day, the glory of God will illuminate all our sin. But if we've surrendered your life to Jesus in this life, the greatest surprise on the day of judgment will be his open arms of grace. And if you belong to him, on that day, he will look at you and he'll say, hey, welcome. Come join me at a table, a table called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, where you will join with people of all nations, tongues, languages, those who have given their lives to Christ in this life, and come partake in the feast without end. And as we prepare to take communion together this morning, We realize we don't just take a table looking back to what Jesus has done, but we also take this meal looking forward to the table to come. For he has made a way. He will establish justice in the world. And if you've surrendered your life to Jesus in this life, the greatest surprise on the day of judgment will be his open arms of grace. So we're going to take communion together. But before I do, I just want to speak. If there's anybody in here who you've not given your life to Jesus, like you've not surrendered, I mean, why not now? Now is just as good of time as any to recognize our sin, to receive his grace, to surrender our lives. And if that's you and you want to do that, I just want to give you an opportunity to express that. I'm going to give you some words that you can pray after me. Don't think that this is a magic formula. This is no abracadabra, right? Like this is just an expression. The only way this is true is if it's sincere from your heart. That's what matters most. And so I'm going to pray. Give a few words. And if you've never given your life to Jesus and you want to, repeat these words after me. And then we're going to have a moment of silence as a church where all of us can just search our hearts and say, God, is there anything that is between you and me right now? I confess that before we come and take a communion. So Lord Jesus, thank you for working. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being honest with us, even when it's hard. And if there's anybody here who wants to give their life to Jesus, just repeat after me and say, Jesus, I realize I'm a sinner. I fall short of your holiness, but I also realize that you demonstrated your love 
on the cross when you died for me. Forgive me, Lord. I receive your grace. Thank you for inviting me into your family forever. My life is yours. Amen.